I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. I've got to know the interviewees in today's episode quite well over the last few years. That means I've been able to follow closely their remarkable journey from small subsidiary of the Hyperion Group to an independent, employee-owned MGA writing over $500 million of premium in 2020 and still projecting organic growth of 20% or more in 2021. So how have David Walsh and Graham Newman of CFC Underwriting done it? I think one of the most striking things is what a partnership these two entrepreneurs make and how their characters complement each other. It's hard to think of one without the other and of CFC without either of them. They're also a notch below the average age of many among their peers. And I think this translates to a slightly more progressive feel for the business. But you should listen for yourself and make up your own mind. In this episode, we talk a lot about CFC's core line of cyber insurance and building a long-term comparative advantage. It's a response to the COVID pandemic, what David and Graham's long-term plans are for CFC, and how the firm is trying to distill its entrepreneurial culture as it begins to grow beyond its core London roots. It's a great discussion, and one which I would highly recommend to any budding entrepreneurs out there looking for pointers to see how it's done. A quick note, the first question is answered by David, and then Graham comes in for the second. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Well, Graham and David... Thanks so much for giving me the time to talk to the Voice of Insurance. You must be incredibly busy. Let's get straight to it. CFC was targeting £400 million gross written premium in 2020. How's it worked out for you? And what sort of target are you setting yourselves for 2021? Morning, Mark, and thanks very much for having us on. Yeah, it's obviously been an incredibly interesting year this year, but we're relatively fortunate in that we're in the fast-growing emerging classes like cyber and IP and the fast-growing business sectors like tech, fintech, new media, e-health, things like that. And of course, corona hasn't affected these sectors too badly yet, at least. So yes, we're on track. We'll write £400 million this calendar year, and our budget's to grow at least 20% organically next year to just under £500 million. Which are your star performers out of cyber? Obviously, if you ask anybody in Lime Street, what does CFC do? People would say cyber, I think, first. How's cyber going? Is it still absolutely your main class? And Anecdotally, it seems to be in a harder market right now. 
Yeah, hi Mark. Thanks for having us on. Uh, very excited about this. And, and Cyber, you've obviously hit on a topic that I'm deeply passionate about. And it's a line of business that really was at the, the core of CFC right at the very start. It's the first line of business we got into in, in 99-2000. And um, pleased to say that today it, it's still our largest line. It represents about 40% of the total premium that we do. And in terms of volume lines, it's certainly the fastest growing line which is fantastic. And it's been a journey. And I think we've seen that, that journey over 20 years. And I think the cyber market, as, as we've talked about before, is getting to a really interesting next stage in its journey. Clearly, there's talk of a, of a hardening market. We're definitely seeing things change and rates change. It's been, for as long as I've known it, Dave, and you, you've known it longer than me, you know, over the last 20 years, I think that the market's got softer and softer, clearly, and, and products expanded, which is the, the true nature of an emerging class of business. That's what tends to happen. You know, it starts off with incredibly high rates, and then you get a little braver every year, as we have done. Of course, at the same time, the cyber criminal underground has changed and has got emboldened. So yet we've seen a, a big rise, not necessarily in the frequency of claims, but certainly the severity, which is driving the market changes right now. So it's an exciting, exciting time for cyber. I think we, we might see some interesting shakeout over the next 12 to 18 months. So it's a sort of maturity. It's the first time you're getting experience coming through and now the rates are reacting to the poor experience. Is that right? Well, certainly a change in experience rather than necessary poor experience. I think as a class of business, as, as most people will testify to, it's, it's still a profitable class of business. It might just be less profitable than it was four or five years ago. And that's just a, a function of increased competition, rightly increased pressure from brokers who look to try and make sure the product is as broad as possible for customers, coupled with at the same time a growth in cybercrime. So I think it's a, it's a natural evolution of the market and perhaps not an unhealthy one either. We've had a lot of um, speculation about COVID affecting cyber frequency of losses. Has that really been the case? It's certainly not been our experience. And I think this is borne out in, even if you were to look at the Lloyd's numbers, that frequency of claims hasn't necessarily changed materially over this, what's it been? It seems a lifetime now, well, maybe eight, eight to 10 months. And I don't think any of this is, is necessarily COVID-driven, even though I know that's the kind of popular talk track that people always want to join dots of increased working from home suddenly means that we're all more vulnerable and susceptible. I think the reality of the matter is that cyber criminals have got emboldened. And this rise in ransomware is a demonstration of that. And that's really what's driven experience recently. Does it affect severity, though, having so many people working remotely and suddenly you've turned a business that had one location into a business that has thousands of locations yeah so i think one of the interesting byproducts that we've seen i suppose is how you handle claims when once upon a time we'd have people centralized in one place so if you had an it network let we had, we had an example of a claim where it was a five thousand employee firm and normally there'd be over two or three locations when you fix their computers suddenly you've got the battle of how do you fix five thousand computers that are in five thousand different locations clearly it's a more complex challenge a bit more expensive you could say that mark <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to dive too much into the weeds of cyber specifically, but let's talk in more in general terms. 2020, the market has really seen, obviously, it's a hardening market across the board pretty much, but it's seen a real shakeout in the MGA world. Has uh, getting your capacity and your binders renewed for 2021 been difficult? Yeah, as you say, the market's been hardening um, more and more through this year, and I think we expect it to, do, to continue that trend next year. I think that makes it harder for both carriers and MGAs. And you could argue, I would say this, wouldn't I? But in my view, the press focused uh, a little bit too much on MGAs. Over the last two years, 11 Lloyd syndicates have stopped trading. All Lloyd syndicates have gone through the decile 10 process and exited classes. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen Axa XL exit DNO. We've seen Amlin exit Cyber. So, yeah, of course, some MGAs will find it difficult. 
over the next year or so. But I think that the thing is, because MGAs tend to be monoline, the smaller ones, of course, when they exit a class, they actually go out of business. So it's more visible and it makes more news. So we hope that with our broad backing and we've got 38 Lloyd syndicates backing us with our scale and really with the breadth of our value proposition, that'll help us through what's clearly going to be a difficult time for a lot of people in the next year. I suppose if you're making money for them, why would they pull the plug? That is always the ultimate test, yes. <laughs> Do you think there was some kind of bubble in MGAs at some point around 2015, 2016, 2017? It seemed to be, for me, certainly sitting outside, it seemed to be that everybody who wanted an MGA seemed to go and get one. My, my view is that the bubble's probably the wrong word for it. I mean, un- undoubtedly, there were a lot of MGA startups over the last five or six years, certainly a lot more than you might have seen 10 or 15 years ago. But that's as much, as you know, Mark, as much a function of the market cycle and frankly, entrepreneurs setting up businesses to meet a market demand. The other characteristic of MGAs certainly is that they are kind of lower capital startups than maybe an insurance company would be. And I think this is true, not just in insurance, it's true in any line of business where you have a reasonably high volume of startup businesses where it's a low cost of capital, there tends to be a slightly higher turnover of those businesses. They either get acquired early on or they hit a bump in the road and and they disappear. I think the more interesting thing to emerge actually over the last five or six years when it comes to MGAs is I suppose the emergence of MGAs of true size and scale, where it's a business model where the owners have chosen that business model as the model they want to compete with. And what we've seen actually is a collection of MGAs that have invested really heavily in their technology, in their infrastructure, they've got really deep roots. And I think what we're going to see over the next few years is those businesses from the outside looking indiscernible from maybe what you might imagine as a traditional insurance company. And it's certainly a business model that we've really embraced and that we really love. And I think that with this model, where actually the only real difference is the capital base that we sit on, that we can really create a business that challenges the big incumbents. And that's what we're doing. That's what we believe in and are passionate about as a model. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think when people talk about MGAs in the press or just, you know, when people are talking, often I just feel it's a proxy for small. When people say, oh, MGAs, they just mean a small insurance provider. And when people talk about insurance carriers, it's a proxy for big insurance carrier. So, of course, if you're a big MGA, or I suppose if you're a really, really small insurance carrier, you'd likely break that mold. If you look like an insurance company, you do everything an insurance company has to do and you do all the compliance for your paper backers and make sure their solvency two stuff's in, in, in alignment and you've got all your aggregations and everything else under control. And, and so, you know, you're running effectively a virtual insurance company on behalf of capital. Do you think there comes a point where you should be sourcing your own capital and doing it yourself? Yeah, well, obviously access to capacity is crucial for us and we're fast growing. We grow over 20% organically every year. So effectively that's over a hundred million dollars or even hundred million pounds nowadays. So yeah, we're always looking for new capital. A couple of years ago, we went outside of Lloyd's for the first time and we're now 75% Lloyd's, 25% other insurers. Clearly we're at a size now where we have to look at all strategic options every year or two. But I think it goes back to what Graham was saying earlier. The most important point is we're an MGA by choice. We absolutely love the MGA model. It means we can focus on what we feel we're good at. And capital management is not our skill set. That's what our carriers do for us. We're also, of course, as you know, very international. So getting any sort of capital for it to be useful, it would need international licenses, which probably means Lloyd's. And historically, a Lloyd's syndicate hasn't felt right for us. But of course, relatively recently, Lloyd's have set up a number of new vehicles. They've got follow syndicates, syndicates in boxes, SPAs. And maybe even more importantly than that, I understand that Lloyd's seem to have a willingness to be flexible about how they would do business with someone like us. 
as long as it's good for them, of course. So I think it's possible that one day one of those kind of entities uh, may well work for us. But for now, we're sticking to the knitting. I did an episode with Carbon Underwriting recently. Do you think that's something that might work for you? Something that's following that you can bolt onto all your existing binders? Yeah, I mean, possibly, but it's that's a syndicate in a box, I think, isn't it? And, and I think that's aimed at really relatively small startups, basically, isn't it? So... Yeah, I suppose our trade is always the distraction versus what we're actually getting out of this. We know what we get out of putting all our energy into building our MGA. It's a big distraction to do any of these things. If, what does it mean for a syndicate of bolts? We've got a little bolt on that sort of makes 10 million pounds worth of capacity, slightly better use to us than just actually going to all of our very good friends in Lloyd's and asking them to back it. Just it got level 10 million out of 500 million. Yeah. You know? <laughs> strategically is it a problem as well presumably when you source a bit of your own capital that's really good because people can see that you've got skin in the game and that you know you'll bleed when they bleed and, and you are aligning your interests but at the same time does there come a point where if you're sourcing your own capital people think oh god this is the long-term game is that they want to get rid of me and they want to do it all themselves yeah, i'm not sure they would but i think you're right i mean the, the sort of best reason to do it is comes a bit of a nonsense if you like because the best reason to do it is the optics because I think it, it does look good. But actually, you know, as I said, there are valid reasons not to do it. And it's really around distraction. So we're not not doing it. I hate double negatives. <laughs> we're not not doing it because we don't believe in eating our own cooking. We're not not, we're just not doing it because we like to focus on what we do for a living. You know, frankly, half the Lloyd syndicates don't look that different from us when you look at how much they reinsure. So, you know, I don't think that there would be a fear from our carriers just because we dipped our toe in the water if we were to do that, which we're not currently planning to. I don't think there's suddenly fear that we're going to take over because that's not the way these things tend to work, I don't think. I certainly don't feel like we don't have skin in the game. So it's an expression I keep hearing and I feel like I'm very invested with an incredible amount of skin in the game every single day. And I can't tell you how focused we are as a business on underwriting profitability. And that's got nothing to do with whether we've got some of our own capital, or frankly, third-party capital, whatever it is behind us. It's, we live and breathe this every day. And obviously there are many mechanisms for creating shared interest. And the Lloyd's Market's done that incredibly well right now. I, I mean, I look at some of these new business models that are popping up that claim some virtue that they're actually a true insurance company. They don't have skin in the game yet. All they do is use reinsurance to replicate an MGA. So I just don't buy the lack of skin in the game. It's certainly a much more nuanced market than anyone <laughs> uses to recognise. Because you've got profit commissions, you can have them clawed back, you can do all sorts of things. And of course, ultimately, if you lose money for everybody, you don't have a business ultimately because no one wants to back you anymore. Absolutely. That's why we feel quite invested in it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> As individuals, you know, we've got a culture of deep and broad share ownership at the CFC. So as individual human beings, we're all much more invested in a typical human being working for a carrier. Let's get back to the market, actually. We've spoken about cyber being in a good place. Where else is really good at the moment? You mentioned about withdrawals in DNO, and I've had a podcast recently that uh, suggests that DNO would be a hell of a good place to start. And obviously, you've, you've been doing DNO for many years. Is that one of your other star classes at the moment? It's certainly a market which has got plenty of dislocation at the moment. I think your recent podcast summed that up quite well. I think it's, it's difficult to talk about classes generically, but I think, as you know, Mark, there's always opportunities in lots of different markets at all stages of the cycle. And actually the, the point of insurance, we should get more laser focused and pick on parts of the market where there are bigger opportunities. But for me, I suppose it's a bit of a worry when you are in a market like we have now where there's a lot of dislocation because there is a real temptation to get sucked into areas that perhaps you don't understand 
understand as well as others. And that's a temptation that I think it's important for us to resist. And where the real opportunities lie in today's market, I think, are in the areas that you really understand better than anybody else, the areas where you've got real competitive advantage, a tangible competitive advantage. And that's where I think the opportunity is. Clearly different types of business can nip in and out very quickly of classes where they think there's dislocations led to outsized returns. It's just not in our business model. So something you'd say it's more like something for a carrier because the commodity there is the capacity itself, whereas your commodity is really the expertise. Absolutely. There, there are certain businesses clearly which are set up to take advantage of market cycles, and that's that's a capital play. What I think our business has to be set up to do is to be a long-term, reliable partner for our brokers and for our, our customers. That means that we inherently have to find lines of business that are profitable and can be written profitably through the cycle. And I think the only way that you can do that is by building up infrastructure, and that's technology, it's data, it's process, it's distribution, that means that you can outcompete the market over all market cycles. And that's the kind of business that we're, we're trying to build. And that's why when you look at the classes of business we're in, we're in things like emerging areas of risk, as you said at the outset, IP, cyber, transaction liability, areas where there's just inherent growth, you're not having to force the growth, just those areas are, are, are building. And areas where there's less competition, and, and I see that really in the nexus between technology and traditional industries. So if you look at the industries we compete in, in healthcare, we, we major more on digital healthcare. So that if you're seeing a lot, talk about impact of COVID-19, that's really accelerated digital healthcare. When we're looking at media, it's less about traditional broadcasters. We're looking at the end where it's Instagram influencers and YouTubers and, and maybe people running podcasts. So we tend to be in that area where there's an excess, there's just less competition, which means that inherently there's, there's, there's greater profitability. That, that's how we play. Are you trying to sell me some insurance? <laughs> it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in my, it's in my blood. <laughs> David, uh, you mentioned, well, both of you mentioned about your broad employee shareholder ownership. You've had different financings over, over the years. What are your really long-term ambitions? What's your end goal? Or do you not have one? Would you ever want to go public? Is there some kind of exit plan that you've got in, in the bottom drawer that you want to dust off at some point? Or you're a kind of, you want to own this business and grow it forever type thing and have something you can pass on to your grandchildren? <laughs> So from a, a non-ownership perspective, in terms of what we're trying to build, our stated vision is to be the most highly regarded specialist insurance provider in the world. We're aiming to do that. We're trying to do that by creating a company that great people are really, really proud to work for and that's constantly at the forefront of innovation. As you say, we're on our third set of investors right now. And actually what we love doing is increasingly, we, we absolutely love doing deals every five years. Why? Because as both individuals as a, as a business, it feels like it's really good discipline to focus on a five-year project. I find that works at a human level and as business level. But also every five years, it means we can recut the equity and get more and more staff shareholders involved, more staff involved with the shareholding. So I'm really proud. It's the thing we're most happy about is we have over 180 of our 425 staff are now meaningful shareholders in CFC, not just bit shareholders, meaningful shareholders. So that's 40% of our staff. And over the last two deals we've done, we've actually increased staff ownership from 16%, one six, to over 60, six zero. So that's great. We are now majority owners in this business. So for us, coming back to your question about future ownership and deals, this is our route one. We'd like to just continue that and, and hopefully maybe increase that six zero upwards, which I think answers your question. But... You know, I also think 
if your focus is on building, as I think Graham was saying earlier, a business of enduring quality and competitive advantage, then ultimately you're building a quality business and ultimately all options should be open to you. And I, and I hope you're on a good day. That's what we're trying to do. You do sometimes see businesses where maybe they're trying to catch a moment where they're valued at a certain amount, which is useful to a certain portion of their ownership or something. But that's really not what we're trying to do. We've got three, three sets of investors. We're very, very good friends with both past sets. The idea is that every set of investors has a good journey at CFC and hopefully the employees come out even stronger next deal round. And I suppose these days with the amount of growth capital that is available, you don't need to go anywhere near public markets if you don't want to. No, I mean, not certainly no, um, because number one, like insurance broking, the MGA model is a really nice cash generative model. And also, as you know, we're not naturally very acquisitive as a business, so we don't need to have war chests to buy businesses. We tend to invest to get new skills in, and so we might acquire businesses which are more like aqua hires to get the skills in, but they tend to be smaller and bolt on and we can do them at a cash flow. Before I ask the next question, I wanted to break off for a minute and ask you a question. Has insurance really got a clue about technology and how to get the best out of it? Before you answer, I want to tell you a story about technology and insurance that I think proves beyond doubt that insurance people and tech people live on completely different planets. The story comes from the voice of insurance's in-house insurance technology innovators at InsureTech Gateway. You may remember one of its co-founders, Stephen Britton, was my guest in episode 38. Anyway, we were chatting after recording the podcast, and I don't know how it came into the conversation, but we started talking about words that we would like to be banned from the insurance industry. And he said he would like to wipe out the word interesting from the insurance dictionary. He even asked me to tell all of you to stop using the word from now on. I thought it was a bit weird, and I asked him why. I mean, what's wrong with interesting? Stephen said that all the InsurTech founders the InsurTech Gateway works with found this to be one of the most feared words they could hear from an insurer. He said that it had taken them ages to realise that interesting means a completely different thing to a tech founder as it does to an insurer. He asked me to imagine a crunch meeting. An InsurTech founder, dressed in a suit for the first time in years, is pitching their idea to a room full of insurers. It's make or break. They're running out of time and money. As the meeting draws to a close, all of the insurers in the room thank the InsurTech, their shared glances followed by hearty agreement. They all think the idea was interesting. In the lift going down the 23 floors to the streets of EC3, the founder is doing mental somersaults, fist pumps and texting, we nailed it, back to the team in the office. At the same time, the insurers in the room have finally broken silence. One looks to the other and says, I didn't understand a word of that, did you? But it sounded very clever. There's a general nod and a sigh of relief around the room. They all agree it was indeed interesting and then get on with something else. Months go by and nothing happens. The founder is trying to work out who to talk to to follow up on this great meeting. But eventually they have to throw in the towel. And that's what the InsurTech Gateway is all about. At the Gateway, Stephen and his colleagues have spent the last five years doing the translating between the two different groups. They've been banning the word interesting and replacing it with focus conversation and action. And that's why InsurTech Gateway is one of the great places for activating innovation and insurance today. So next time you find some really interesting technology that you have no idea how to integrate into the insurance world, make sure you get in touch with them. You made up your first acquisition last year. So when you're reinvesting some of that cash flow, what's going to be your focus going to be? It's interesting you mentioned that. It's been a long time coming, right? 20 years. 
And I think it probably looked a little strange to people that to 20 years of kind of organic growth at 20% plus, we decided to buy a cybersecurity firm in Austin, Texas. Probably wasn't what people were expecting. And I think a lot of people have been wondering why we haven't been buying up MGAs left, right and center. But as Dave said, I don't think that is our model. When you can get organic growth at the, the rate that we get it, why would you do that? It's much more interesting to buy in skills and infrastructure that really accelerates our competitive advantage. That's what this deal was about. And it's interesting, we, we were the, I think we were the first cyber insurance provider to recognize that it would make sense to bring in house the instant response capability within cyber. But we specialize really at that small and mid-market end. It's the end of the market where customers, what they're really predominantly buying is that service. They're, they're buying access to a 24-7 instant response team that it's, it sounds a little a bit funny, but it's the fourth emergency service for these businesses. And when that's such a core part of our value proposition, why would we ever choose to outsource that? If you outsource that, you just quite simply have less control over it. So we wanted to have more control. And we tried that five years ago. We liked what we saw and figured it's an area to double down in, hence the acquisition of Solid Security, which I think has worked phenomenally well for us and for our customers and frankly for our carriers as well. It's really hard in cyber to get this true alignment of interests. I suppose that lawyers, when it comes to professional liability and DNO underwriters, have a bit more experience over the decades of working with insurance providers. Not true in the cybersecurity world. And of course, security consultants like lawyers are paid by the hour. So where is their interest in reducing the number of hours? So I think that there's this real problem and acquiring the business helps us solve it. We dispensed with the conventional wisdom of putting revenue and profit targets on the deal and actually tried to create the alignment around our business metrics. So we wanted to, to lower loss ratios to get better customer outcomes and to help our clients recover quicker. And that's what it's all about. So that's the kind of area that we're investing in. We are absolutely committed to building the world's best cyber claims infrastructure. I think that's what gives us our long-term enduring competitive advantage. So when you when you see more investments, I think you're going to see more investments like that. So it's all about full service stuff that you really want to do yourself and try and be the best in. Yeah, absolutely. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about trying to find areas of insurance where we think we've got a, an enduring competitive advantage. And let's face it, at the end of the day, what do we sell for a living? We can sell claims for a living. If fundamentally we can handle those claims at a lower cost whilst providing better customer outcomes, then that's the secret to making long-term profit, right? And that's, I suppose, the game that, that we're in. So that's a big area for us. And I suppose the other big area of focused investment is in data. And it's strange because I know there's a data arms race going in across the insurance market right now, but the area that we play predominantly in, which is commercial specialty lines, I think it's been slightly overlooked, probably because that there isn't tons of data. And that's where we're looking to make some more strategic moves because it's important that we have access to large volumes of structured data. That's the other area. That's the other investment that we made that we can talk about if you're interested. Well, I'm interested. And as an MGA, you can own all that data. Do you have to share it with your carriers? Or how does it work? Let me tell you a little bit about the theory, if you like, behind that acquisition, which is quite a cool company called Thread Informer, a small group of people in London who spent the last five years building some quite cool technology that essentially analyzes a business from the outside. Their um, real use case was cyber risk assessment, and that's how we came across them, but instantly recognized there was far broader applicability across we do. And it's just this weird concept within insurance that if you look at insurance, we tend to ask our customers hundreds of questions. Everyone moans about those application forms. And then we store a tiny subset of that data in our systems 
and then we price off one or two items, right? Which just seems crazy when you think about it. And we always felt that we should invert that. Can we create a model where we can ask our customers as few questions as humanly possible, where we can then use a, an automated method to gather hundreds, if not thousands of structured data points, and then feed that into our pricing mechanisms to make more intelligent underwriting decisions. And that's where we're going with data. And that's what the team at Thread Informer, who now kind of form the bedrock of our insight division internally, are all about. And I think that's data that is important that, that we own and that we control and our data science team can use to make better pricing insights. And I'm not sure that many of our carriers would know where to store it if they even had it, frankly. So I think they trust us and rely upon us to use it wisely. The problem they had when they were an independent owner-managed business was that, of course, all their potential customers like us, when they were talking to lots of Lloyd syndicates, things like that, are very nervous sharing data with them. And of course, I think that's the journey that a lot of InsureTech go on. They start off as potential wannabe disruptors, and then actually, of course, realize that no one wants to share their data with them. And you pick your best friend and then actually join forces with them. It's a really interesting point. David, it was, it was an interesting juncture of that journey that they could tell me a lot about the external security profile. They could tell what security technology people were or weren't using. But the problem that they had was they identified a specific security technology for simplicity, let's say a firewall. And they could say, oh, that customer's got it. What they couldn't say is, does that make them a 10% better risk, a 20% better risk, a 50 100% better risk than the company that doesn't? Because to do that, you need the claims data. And clearly our claims data is a really important piece of our IP and we've spent a fortune, unfortunately, on, on building that data set out. And merging those two things together is what creates something valuable. And I think you can only do that, as Dave says, if, if you actually move to a different relationship, which was an acquisition. So with this, are you sourcing a lot of third-party data? You mentioned about those, trying to make it really easy for the customer. You see the sort of things now where you just put your zip code, postcode and your surname or something, and then you can get a quote for your home insurance and car insurance and something else. Yeah, so that's absolutely the model that we're trying to bring into commercial specialty lines, where in a way that I just don't think it exists right now. Cyber is an obvious class of business to do it in, because what you can do with people's technology footprint is a bit like telematics in cars. There's a lot that you can observe about behavior. And that's a mix of building up some proprietary stuff. There are also what people call open source intelligence. So there's lots of people out there who are generating data sets that they make freely available that you can do things with. There are some excellent commercial feeds and commercial firms that have done a lot of the work. And really it's about bringing all of this together in a way that we can plug into our systems and a way that we can interpret. Probably the best example of that is the Connect platform that we launched, which was billed, I think is the world's first single question quoting platform for cyber, where essentially we take a company's domain name. It's amazing what you can learn from a company's domain name. If you give me the domain name, we can reverse engineer that back into a company name, a company address. We can locate the building, get the latitude, longitude of it. We can see what their internet footprint is. We can see who their mail provider is, how they secure that mail. We can tell where they host their website. We can tell lots about the security of that website. We can look at the software that they're using. You can look at their social media footprint. How big is it? Is it? Does it correlate, therefore, with the, the revenues and employees? There's, there's so much that you can gather. And our job over the next 12, 24 months is to find the really meaningful bits of that data. There's a lot of data, right? The, the, the skill is finding the meaningful bits that correlate with claims. And that's the work that, that we're doing right now. But it's, it's really exciting. I think um, we've got a lot of brokers excited about what we can do in, in cyber with that. So as Graham says, we're trying to ask as few questions as possible, in fact, just one, and then of course, scrape as much information off the internet in a few milliseconds as you can, both paid for and non-paid for data feeds. 
And then, of course, ultimately, in a few years' time, we can look back and regress it and work out, oh, my God, you know, actually, the, the biggest predictor of claims is not actually revenue or something else like that. It's the Christian name of the CEO. I don't know. It's something completely left field. Well, I look forward to your report that you're going to put out on it. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> but, sound, but it also sounds very insure-techy to me. We said you probably not want to go near the public markets, but I don't know, surely, if, you, if you're going to get the sort of valuations that um, an IPO like Lemonade, and now we've got the root IPO is pricing at somewhere above the market capitalization of SCORE at the moment, as I believe. Wouldn't you like to do that? I mean, that sounds rather good. We've had the insure-tech phenomenon over the last four or five years. Are you seen as an insure-tech business in some ways, or would you like to be? It's funny to say that, Mark. It's funny you mentioned valuation because I remember your former publication when you were in situ actually described our, our previous valuation in 2017 as vertiginous, which is highly <laughs> wrong when you look at, when you look what happened two or three years later. They'll do anything for a bit of alliteration. It wasn't a high water mark. It was. It was both definitely not a high water mark. It seems positively low, frankly. But look, I, I've always slightly struggled with the term insure tech. I think it's one of those overused, misused expressions like AI and machine learning. And it feels like a little bit more one for the marketeers and the investment bankers than it is people on the inside. I think maybe the reason why it doesn't sit comfortably with me is that it makes it sound like this is a new phenomenon. And if you think back to the origins of our business back in 99, 2000, CFC was a business called clickforcover.com. It was a dot-com business back then as, as we were built. And I think that's what people call shortex now. And actually, as far as I'm concerned, there's been a really rich history over the last 20 years of investment in the insurance sector, in technology, and frankly, insurance startups with heavy digital investments too. So I don't think it's that new, but there are clearly a lot of parallels between 99, 2000, the dot-com boom, and what we're seeing with the insure tech boom right now. There's a wave of capital coming in, which is really exciting, and it's seeking out businesses with strong technology stories, which is leading undoubtedly to some valuations that external commentators might bill as being crazy, and maybe some insurance insiders, is that the right? Can I use that word? <laughs> might also see as slightly crazy, but I think equally just like 99, 2000, there will be a number of those businesses that, that disappear, never really see the light of the day. And I'm sure there will be a number that come out and look like incredible businesses. Now, I have absolutely no idea whether that's Lemonade and Root. I know nothing about the inner workings of those businesses to comment. But I suppose the point that I think we should be really careful on is this mantra or talk track that seems to be coming out that suggests that the insurance industry is deeply broken because I don't think it is. And that's the bit that that gets because I think that's the disservice. I mean, I've had a couple of experiences as a consumer of insurance. I had a, a household claim with a, a major UK insurer. And frankly, I thought that was a, an incredible experience. I mean, it was very fair. It was very quick. I didn't have to talk to a chat bot. And if I ever used the word, I might even describe it as delightful. I had a motor claim, which was utterly seamless. And by the way, that was off a policy that I bought in under two minutes online that frankly, for the last six years, I haven't had to think about because it all renews automatically. So I think it's dangerous for us to have this kind of talk track, which is part of the investment thesis in a lot of these businesses that insurance is fundamentally broken. I think that is utterly disrespectful to a lot of people who've built some phenomenal businesses that invest heavily in technology and are doing incredibly well. So that's my view on insure tech as a concept, but as a person kind of running a business that believes deeply in investment in technology and data, I'm obviously excited that the externals are seeing the value in that. But nothing wrong with a vertiginous valuation. <laughs> Absolutely. Depends whether you're a buyer or a seller, Mark. I think also in answer to one of the previous questions, talking about 
building a business with enduring competitive advantage and quality and stuff like that, then as you grow, one would expect your valuation to tick up because as businesses grow, they become more robust, etc. Whereas I'm not talking about root or lemonade specifically, but when you talk about insurtechs and what often it seems they're trying to do, it does, I think I said it earlier, it does feel like they're trying to catch a moment. You know, there's a bit of the we work about it all, isn't there? Quick, if we do it this month, we might be able to get this five billion valuation. Well, we're not really in that game, as, as you asked earlier. You know, we're in a business where it's actually about increasing staff share ownership over time. It's about going through multiple deals over every five years. It'd be great if our valuation ticks up in the normal course of the events. You'd expect it would, although clearly there are external market forces. We can send it either way. But we don't have to catch a time. We don't have to catch a moment that buys us security whereas yeah root better get the hell on with doing whatever they're trying to yes. do yes and you don't burn <laughs> you don't burn cash you you generate it so yeah, we generate big cash. difference no i think it helps you making sense of investment decisions as well because i really do think you know you've got to as dave says you've got to invest for the long term not to try and capture certain amounts of time and that shouldn't like deal structure shouldn't dictate what you do with investment what businesses you buy or when you buy them what people you hire or when you hire them you should be doing that because you've got a, a firm view on where you're trying to take the business and i think that's something that particularly dave as a leader of our business has been very very clear on i think that's part of our, our core culture and I, I don't see that changing and we're lucky because private equity's morphed a lot over the last decade or even more recently. And that criticism of it before when, you know, they're moving on every five years, therefore, as a management team, can you really invest in the last couple of years in the thing that actually the next investor is going to get the benefit from? Well, there's a whole sort of industry of, <laughs> of uh, people, advisors and accountants and whatever around private equity businesses that make it that bit, you know, you normalize your bit. And if, you, if you've invested in something and you haven't got the full payback from that yet, well, that gets put back in and normalized a bit so actually when you go through that process the right way the fact that your investor might change every five years shouldn't affect the decisions you make within that five-year period and i think we're lucky because 20 years ago we could have looked exactly the same but frankly i don't think the private equity investment community was that sophisticated to be able to do to allow that you've become a mature and quite large business now how do you get that small company feel and you're also quite well known for being under one roof in London business. At what point do you get to the size where you can't do that anymore? Where you're going to have to open up in another insurance hub somewhere else? Why don't you do the one roof thing, Graham, and I'll do the small company thing. Yeah, so I think unfortunately we might have broken the um, the model of being under one roof. So um, we, we made the acquisition in, in Texas. We've actually got an operation in New York, which is running our admitted cyber product, which we need for regulatory and licensing reasons. We have an office in, in Brussels, not a big office, but a very, very small, very efficient office in Brussels for our, our Brexit vehicle. So we've always loved the idea of having everybody under one roof because culture is really important to us. And it felt like that's the easiest way to build and maintain and nurture a culture. And frankly, it's a more efficient operating model. You avoid all this duplication of cost. So it, it was important to us, but we always did have this mantra, this is pre-COVID, that being local is not about physical location. And really technology enables that. I mean, being local is about providing better services, better products than local competitors, doing it quicker than local competitors, and having an empathy and understanding of the local business environment. And frankly, you can do that from pretty much any place in the world. I and mean, you don't know right now whether I'm in London, Paris, New York, Sydney, could be anywhere. And so if it was true pre-COVID, it's certainly even truer during and probably post-COVID. So we'd be more relaxed about location. But the culture point is an important point. And how you maintain that is clearly harder the more disparate your workforce is. 
Yeah, before we come on to that, I mean, yeah, I mean, our job's always been we compete against local insurers and local NGAs all around the world. And actually, well over 90% of what we do in London, business we write in London, wouldn't come to London if it wasn't for us. It would just stay local. So our job is to provide a better service, a better product, a better experience, better technology, better everything to that small customer. Because remember, outside of big cyber and transactional liability, our customers are micro, not SME. You know, in our industry, lovely. I love the definitions of SME in our industry. These are micro customers, three people, two people, four people, £200,000 in revenue. They want to pay less than £2,000 for their insurance. These are hard to access businesses, but we access them through a network of 2,800 brokers around the world that we deal with directly from London, which is actually better, in my opinion, distribution than any other London entity. I'm not talking about Beasley USA, I'm talking about Beasley London, I'm not talking about... So we compete with those locals and it's all about actually using technology, people, process, service to be better than the guy down the street. So yeah, so we feel more pressure to go local if that's... Because of regulatory reasons, because we need licenses like Brussels or New York, or for claims handling reasons, which is why we did what we did in Austin, Texas. There was another part of the question, wasn't there, about how we keep the small entrepreneurial culture going at CFC. And that's, you know, obviously a really, really good question. Um, Although actually, I I feel like we're at a really powerful size now, a really good size, as in a good mix of small and big. But that's our challenge every day, always has been, always will be. And ultimately, we want a culture where people really care about what we're doing and are passionate about the business we're building. And of course, a big part of that answer is the deep, broad employee share ownership we have, because that naturally breaks down silos. It naturally means people are interested in how the whole group, the whole business is doing. And I think it's interesting because we have performed pretty, pretty damn well during the corona journey. And I think a lot of that has been due to that strong culture of caring and passion and responsibility, accountability. But I do, if I'm honest, I am nervous about the second phase of Corona, second phase of working from home, not just for CFC, but I think for all businesses, it's going to be much harder to keep our culture. And obviously all businesses have a culture. I'm not saying ours is better than anyone else's, it's just ours. We used to have a mantra, which is we wanted to be the best employer in the city of London, which is why we were really happy to be listed in the Sunday Times top 100 employers last two years in a row. And of course, that mantra is having to change overnight. And now we've got this really broad working group I'm really excited about. And we're literally brainstorming loads and loads of initiatives because now we've got to be the best employer in the city of London where most people are working from home most of the time. And of course, that's a brand new challenge and it's, it's multifaceted. It, and, and it's actually quite a nice challenge because it's so multifaceted because it's kind of everything. <laughs> so yeah, culture is really important to us. It's our day job. That's what we do. What do you think your learnings from the COVID-19 crisis have been? What's it taught us? Well, as an industry, I've always said, and I nearly jumped in when Graham was talking about some of the insured techs, you know, I've always said insurance is a much more complicated product than people want to acknowledge. And it's probably a good thing ultimately. It's why we all <laughs> have a job. <laughs> Otherwise, the computer would have taken it over a long time ago. And I think also, listening to Pat Ryan on your recent podcast, he made the really good point that insurance is actually also incredibly competitive. So you've got this complex product that's very competitive. And it was actually, of course, competitive market forces that ultimately meant there weren't clear pandemic exclusions on every relevant policy. And of course, in normal circumstances, that would be a really good thing for customers. The market players were pushing the boundaries on cover and weren't allowing those clear exclusions. But unfortunately, of course, those same market forces now 
and making our industry look bad because there's a real lack of clarity around the cover. So for me, I think that's been the big picture. And it's actually coming out of a good thing in our industry is, of course, we just shot ourselves in the foot, which is obviously very depressing. But within CFC, I think we've been, you know, as we said already, we've been very lucky. We've got two business lines that have been badly affected, which is contingency, but it's a relatively small business line for us, and transaction liability, which was a big business line for us. And of course, there's been very little M&A for the last six months. But other than them, at CFC, because we've traded on effectively, successfully, I think we made the big thing all about doing the right thing. So right back in the beginning of April, we had a town hall and we said, cool, blimey, the world's going absolutely mad. It's all about doing and being seen to be doing the right thing. So it was the right thing for customers, meant we paused cover, we extended cover, we cancelled cover for free for those customers who were badly affected. It means to this day, we're trying to look at any corona-related claims incredibly positively. It means for staff, we paid their summer bonuses early in case they had family issues. We promised very early on there'd be no redundancies, no reduction in salaries. We set up a corona hardship fund of a quarter of a million pounds for staff members whose families are in trouble. And then for society, we said we wouldn't, even though we could have done, we said, let's not furlough anyone. Let's not take advantage of any cheap loans or, or even frankly, avail ourselves of any tax breaks so that we can proudly say that we haven't cost the country or the government or society a penny. So for us, that's really been the focus because we're incredibly fortunate because the other thing Corona's actually taught the industry is um, we're actually very, very, very fortunate because we're in a pretty damn resilient industry. And, you know, it's not just us. My understanding is most businesses are trading on pretty well. Graham and David, thanks so much for giving us the time today. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Keep on doing what you're doing and I hope you'll come back and report on progress in due course. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. It's been fun being on. Yeah, great pleasure, Mark. Thanks a lot. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>